Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 25 to the end of the chapter. I've chosen the theme this morning, practical godliness, living the new life. Practical godliness, living the new life. And the Apostle Paul brings us to the close of this great fourth chapter, which he has started out by encouraging us to walk worthy of the manner by which we've been called. Notice in verse 1 here of chapter 4, he doesn't say walk worthy to your potential. Walk worthy to your availability. Walk worthy according to your feelings or walk worthy according to how you deem it up to your capacity that day. No, he simply says walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And we're to do that with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love maintaining the unity of the bond of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, let's read together Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. 25 to 32. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were washed, for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Wow. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. We have to notice here that in this passage of Scripture that the Lord is calling us to adorn our Christian profession with acts that befit our calling. As we've been told to put off the old garment of the old ways of sin, we are to put on the new garment, really putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, the new life. And we are to take heed of everything that is contrary to Christ or his truth. Now, as believers in Jesus, we are to put on full display the glory of the Lord in our everyday lives. No longer with flattery or deceiving others. God's people are children who should not lie and who dare not lie, who do not hate, and we want to abhor lying. Paul also tells us in this, we are to take heed of anger, lest it spreads, ungoverned passions. Is there just occasion to express, express displeasure at what is wrong? Absolutely. To reprove, to rebuke, and to do so without sin, yes. We can have a righteous indignation against all that is evil. And I don't know about you, my brothers and sisters, I felt that righteous indignation this last week. Did you also not? The tragedy that happened in Charleston. This precious pastor and eight of his congregants slaughtered last Wednesday evening. Twelve people gathered for a Bible study, not unlike our church does. 
They happen to be there in the church. We do that sometimes here, sometimes we're in homes. But here they welcomed this man into their fellowship. They welcomed him for fellowship and they welcomed him for prayer and they welcomed him for Bible study. At the end of that time, he did the unthinkable. He took out a weapon and he killed nine of those precious brothers and sisters in Christ. As we were talking about this morning, there is probably no greater example of being the new community, of putting on and adorning ourselves with Christ and our Christian profession and the gospel than to see the wonderful reaction by these dear men and women at Emmanuel Church. They have not given hate. They have not been given over to riot and revenge and They've been given over to humility, brokenness for sure, crushed hearts, yes. The surviving members of those nine precious people driven to tears as you and I have been this last week as well. But yet their first thought was not revenge, it was forgiveness. Their first thought was not justice or riotous activity, it was mercy, it was grace. Is there any greater example that the media today needs to see than how Christians respond in the face of tragedy? They don't know how to handle this, do they? But yet here, it is a wonderful example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the gal that spotted the car after seeing the car in this killer's picture put up on TV on an early morning uh, show that she was headed to work and she drove by and she thought she spotted that car and spotted the young man inside that car and she drove about 10 or 15 minutes and thought, well, maybe I should go back. I don't want to be an alarmist. She says, I'm not a hero. I'm not brave, but I want to go back. Maybe I could be a help here. And so she went back and she followed this car for, I think it was 35 miles. They called the police. She read the tag number and, and it was the same tag number in the parking lot of the church that they had caught on video. They knew it was this young man, and here she said, gave a wonderful testimony, if you've seen it on TV, of saying, I'm not a hero. God will get the glory. I want him to receive all the glory, all the goodness, all the praise. I just want to be a worthy vessel. I want to please the Lord. I want to honor him. Isn't that your heart's desire this morning as well? Lord, make me an available servant of you, an available vessel. And here we see this text of Scripture that we're going to be delving into this morning on the attitude of the new community of believers in Jesus Christ. And I tell you, the world is seeing it put on display before them because of the gospel. And aren't you glad? So much doom and gloom today, so much pronouncement and even promotion of evil. Isn't it good to see good news trump the evil for a change? And to see the gospel of Jesus Christ really made evidence and visible in people's lives. So this is what the apostles calling us to here this morning. We're to know that, that we can be given over to good things and we can even be angry, but we are not to sin. Paul even encourages here that idleness is synonymous to thievery. In fact, it makes thieves. Those that will not work expose themselves to temptation to steal. Men ought to be industrious. Men ought to work hard that they may do good and that they may be kept from temptation. They must labor not only to live honestly, but they would need to want to give to others, to be able to be free to help others in need and to feed the poor and to help other brothers and sisters in Christ that are struggling. 
So what must we think of those Christians who grow rich only by fraud and by evil means or oppression or deceitful practices? Alms are to be accepted of God, but unrighteousness and robbery are not good attributes for any brother or sister in Christ. So honesty, industry, hard labor, God hates robbery for burnt offerings. And so filthy words that proceed from corruption from any of our mouths, from corrupt minds and manners of those who hear them should not be fitting for a Christian. Locker room humor has no place among the people of God. And it's the duty of all Christians to seek his blessing and to bring persons to think seriously, but yet joyfully, about encouragement and warning Christians to their actual belief in who he is. We're to be kind to one another. We're to forgive one another. We're to have the principle of love always at work in our hearts and our minds. We're to be given over to a humble, courteous behavior with each other. And when we're struggling, we're to think the best. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. We must forgive because God in Christ forgave us. Isn't that an amazing phrase here that Paul brings to us? We're to forgive not to our ability, but to how he's forgiven us. So all lying, all corruptness, communication, all the stirring up of evil desire and lust, they grieve the Holy Spirit. The corrupt passions of bitterness, wrath, anger, and gossip, and slander, and evil speaking, malice, aggrieves the Holy Spirit. So here we are to honor the Lord, the blessed Spirit of God. We don't want to see him withdraw his presence from us in daily work of being used by him in our lives because we've grieved him. But the body of Christ, the redeemed body of Christ, who's been redeemed from the power of the grave and the hope of resurrection, wherever that blessed spirit dwells as a sanctifier, as a sealer, as the one who has given us gifts, he is the earnest of all of our joys, as one writer calls him, in the glories of that day of redemption that we should now honor God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength because we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. So as we come to our text this morning, there are five wonderful truths of practical godliness I would like to encourage you in, in your hearts and minds this morning. Number one, number one, practical godliness. This is godliness and the tongue, godliness and the tongue. Notice this in verse 25 and in verse 29. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And then in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The power of the tongue, the power of the tongue. Interesting, Paul begins by talking about the personality of the new community with the power of the tongue. This is something that we all must work on in our lives. 
The tongue is a, a flame of fire. In fact, if you'll turn with me to the most descriptive part of the tongue in James chapter 3 this morning. James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. The tongue. James calls it in this passage that the tongue is a fire and we must guard against its power and use it rightly. Otherwise, we could set blazes among even other brothers and sisters in Christ that would be almost impossible to extinguish. James chapter 3, beginning of verse 1, James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's a warning. A warning on elders, a warning on deacons, a warning on those that want to become teachers. We will be judged, and rightly so, with greater strictness. Why? We are giving the Scriptures, giving the Word of God, and we must rightly divide its truth. James goes on to say, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man also able also to bridle his whole body but there are no perfect people here this morning are there if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they may obey us we guide their whole bodies as well look at the ships also they have so large and driven by strong winds and they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of that pilot directs it so like a bit in the horse's mouth, like a rudder to a mighty ship. So the tongue is small, but yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. What a description of the tongue, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and listen to this phrase, and set on fire by what? By hell. Amazing. Amazing. Very powerful language. The tongue that seeks to destruct as fire burns and destructs and wipes out hundreds of acres of brush and trees and homes at a moment's notice. He said this kind of fire that can really set on fire the entire course of one's life, it's set on fire by hell. He goes on to describe this. He says, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. In other words, it doesn't sleep. It's always looking for something to do, full of deadly poison. With it, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And James says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same spring? Opening both fresh and salt water, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What is he saying? The tongue. If we are regenerated people, if we are the new community of believers, 
if we are to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called, if we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, if we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we are to love our neighbors ourselves, then we should not bless God and curse men with that same tongue. Speech, how we use our tongues, determine so much. Now, if I could invite you to go back with me to Zechariah chapter 8, because as we study here at the Cross Church, so many of these great New Testament truths are found in the Old Testament. So here we have this portion of Scripture, part of it taken out of Zechariah chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Zechariah is the next to the last book of the Bible. And Zechariah says this, this great prophet. He says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Now there's the tongue being used in a wise way, isn't it? Peaceful conversation, truthful conversation. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. We are not according to the Ten Commandments. We are not to bear false witness. It's the Ninth Commandment against one another. We are to bear a truthful witness, not a false one. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Amazing statement. If you'll go with me, since we're in the Old Testament, to Proverbs chapter 6 and verses 16 to 19. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. And here Proverbs, Solomon is giving us key warnings on the use of language, on the use of our tongues. Now listen to how Solomon classifies a tongue that is not used for godly purposes. He says this, there are six things that the Lord hates. Again, that's language that's not common to our 21st ears, are they? The Lord hates certain things. He says seven that are an abomination to him. Here's what the Lord hates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. We saw that this last week as well as, mind you, this could apply even to the abortion mills, shedding the life of innocent blood of an unborn child. A heart that devises wicked plans, feel that makes haste to do run feet pardon me, that makes haste to run to do evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Notice how much of that is surrounding the tongue, sowing discord. What's that? That's just dropping seeds of slander or gossip, just stirring things up breathing out lies. Isn't that interesting? Not just speaking it, it's their life's breath, breathing out lies. Feet that make haste to run to do evil, a heart that devises wicked plans. That's where it begins, but what's in the heart comes out in the tongue. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Here Solomon is speaking to us of the the prime governess that Scripture gives to being truthful in our tongues, truthful with our words. Now, we all relate to this. 
We've all said wrong things. We've all been the recipient of things wrongly said. We have all spread gossip and have been the recipients of gossip. We've slandered and have been the recipients of slander. This appeals to every one of us here this morning. So Scripture is saying, be given over to a truthful tongue, speech that is profitable. Since we're in Proverbs, let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. This is a wonderful, practical book written from the standpoint of one who pretends to be a moral or good person. But again, the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us something here very powerful as to the nature of man. Let's go first and foremost to Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 12. Now listen to this. Here is good instruction for all of us here this morning on wise words. The writer says, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. Now there's the positive. Wise words win favor. How apt is a wise word spoken? It gives favor to others and especially to the Lord. But notice this, but the lips of a fool consume him. Now, a fool is the one in Scripture that says there is no God. There is no one that we have to be accountable to. And the fool is one who is given over to, you've heard it, uh, the phrase, a simpleton. One who in his mind doesn't reason before he speaks or thinks before he speaks. You know, it was said of the of the old Jewish believers that they would have uh, a, an imaginary door over their mind and it said that the wise man knows when to open and close that door of the mind. And they would have this imagery of an open mind isn't something that's good. Uh, you can be so open-minded that you're no good at all. You don't want to become intolerant of all things or tolerant of all things. You want wisdom. You want to know when to open and close your mind. And listen, when we know how to open and close our mind, we know how to open and close our mouths, our tongues. And so he says, Why words, wise words give a man favor, but the lips of a fool will consume him. Notice the next verse. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. From top to bottom, a fool only consumes himself with his own foolishness. And the end of his talk is evil madness, madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. So here we see wise words compared to foolish ones. A wise man who gains favor compared to the foolish man. Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes has something to say to us as believers, though, too. Go back a few chapters, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. This has to do with worship. This is a really good thing for us to hear this morning. It's good for me to hear this morning. He's talking about fearing God and honoring Him. And notice what he says, and this is good for us to learn, even to memorize, beloved, when we come to worship. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen rather than to offer, and here's this little phrase again, the sacrifice of fools, just bloviating. 
just kata, 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 just that incessant waterfall, Niagara Falls of words, the words of foolish people. He says, for they do not know that they are doing evil. There's an ignorance to it as well. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Isn't that interesting? For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. Those are powerful words, aren't they? Convicting words. When we're coming to the house of the Lord, we are to guide our steps. In other words, we're to take stock of ourselves. We don't come here to worship the Lord, even though there's nothing sacred about this particular building, even though we honor it as a sanctuary wide. It's because where we worship God, where his word is preached, where we have fellowship, where we sing praise to him, where we celebrate the Lord's Supper and communion, where we have prayer with one another, all matters of things. So we honor this place, even though the wood and the lights and even the wood of the pulpit itself is not sacred, though the Puritans would call the pulpit the sacred desk. Why? Because the discharge of the duty of the preaching of God's word is a weighty and heavy duty for any, any man. So he says, when you go to the house of the Lord, guard your steps. You want to take stock of yourself, and you want to come near to draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. God's in heaven, we're on earth, therefore, we are to come to not just utter anything before the Lord, we're to let our words be few before him. In other words, we're to guard our speech in a way that's different than we're if, if we're at a ball game or out just talking with each other. We're to be guarded in our speech before the Lord. We're not to be given over to the fool's voice of many words. Here, this is careful speech. This is speech that's honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this, as we go back to Ephesians 4 here, now Paul isn't just saying, put away falsehood, speak the truth. He gives us a motivating factor. He says we're members of one another. What we do with each other affects each other. And it affects the body of Christ. So the new community, we are not born into live separate lives. You know, I grew up in a wonderful Christian family, a wonderful Christian community in Wheaton, Illinois. But I grew up, and maybe you're familiar with this phrase, to only have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, there's a truth to that. We are to live faithfully, personally before him. But make no mistake about it. Our personal lives are born into community. So we are interdependent upon each other within the family of God. So we may have a personal life, yes, in the Lord. That's important, faithfulness that way. But we are members, Paul says, of one another. And because we are members of one another, we are to honor him as being people that are concerned and will honor him as being members of one another. A, a great passage of scripture in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, Paul says this, though many we are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Romans 12, 5. One body in Christ, but individually members one of another. So there's our Trust, we speak the truth, we put away falsehood, 
Paul even says, do this with your neighbor. We are members of one another. But in verse 29, he becomes more careful on what that speech should be. He says, therefore, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. This was a word used in classical Greek literature to describe fruit or food that had gone bad. It had spoiled. It had putrefied. It was rotten, in other words. It was corrupted. And it was no longer pleasing to be around. The same thing he says, don't let your words become rotten, corrupted, putrefied. Make it not worn out, no longer fit for use. No one would go to a junk heap and eat rotten fruit. And he says we shouldn't be giving out rotten words, poor quality, worthless words, bad words. Let no corrupting talk worthy literally only of the junk heap come out from your mouths. But he says only that which is good for building up as fits the occasion. And this word here for building up, it means to edify, strengthen each other. That doesn't mean we can't disagree. Of course we can. We just don't want it to disrupt our fellowship with each other. You know, people would tell me all the time the difference between men and women. Women may have an argument, and correct me, ladies, I'm not trying to be chauvinistic this morning, but women may have an argument, and they may hold a grudge for several days. Does that happen, ladies, with women? You know, with men, you can have an argument with a man and an hour later be out playing around a golf, having a hot dog, enjoying a sporting event. We keep short accounts. That's just my little take on biblical manhood and womanhood. Please don't send me any text messages this week. But he says we're to edify, we're to build up. It's okay to disagree, and it's okay, you know, not to be on the same page. We just don't want it to break fellowship. That's what it means to edify, to build up. And he says, do it so it gives grace to those who hear. Interesting, we think of grace only salvifically, and that's how 99% of that word for grace is used in Scripture, keros, God's unmerited favor through Christ to those who deserve his curse. That's grace. His unmerited favor, we can't earn it. It's a gift to us, to those who deserve his curse, and that only happens through Jesus Christ on the cross. That's grace. But here he says that it may give grace to those who hear. In other words, extend something that's worthy of building up their lives, not the tearing down of the individual. So Paul brings us to the real clarifying work of this new community in Jesus Christ. Go with me lastly on this theme here of Colossians, because Colossians really gives us the mirror of what is happening here in in Ephesians. Colossians is a reciprocal book, and so we see many passages here. Two verses I want to bring your hearts to. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 9. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 9. Here again, Paul says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Listen, one of the marks of the new community in Jesus is that the air is clear. We can have genuine, unfettered, unfeigned fellowship with each other. We don't have to worry, man, when I leave the church, I wonder what they're saying about me. 
No, you know what? We can have great, good, open, honest communication and dialogue, and the accounts are clear, the air is clear. It's wonderful to be in the presence of other believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because we've put off the old self. We put off a life of lying. We put off a life of deception in its old practices. The same thing here in Colossians chapter 4 and in verse 6. Paul says this, let your speech always be gracious. Gracious. Seasoned with salt. Oh, I love that. Salt makes people thirsty. Salt brings out the true flavor of food. It always inhabits a betterness in our speech. If it's seasoned with salt, the conversation is going to be appetizing, satisfying, good, healthy, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Seasoned with salt, seasoned with grace, gracious. Know how we are to answer each person. Now listen, we're frail people. We become upset. We say the wrong things. Again, James is dealing with a group of believers scattered, but yet who were struggling with the use of their tongues. And they were backbiting. They were tearing down. They weren't edifying. And so he says, isn't it amazing that this little instrument, this little organ in our mouth can set a whole life and a world ablaze? And he says, don't use it to bless God and curse others. Use it. If you are believers in the Lord, let your tongue reflect the worthy walk that you have. So, practical godliness. Godliness in the tongue. Number two, godliness in a new attitude. Oh, I love this. Godliness in a new attitude. Not only is it the taming of the tongue, but we're to have a new attitude in our lives as well. Notice this in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 26 and 27, and then also verse 31. The apostle says, be angry and do not sin. Now, let's stop there just for a moment. I had someone ask me about this this last week. They said, Brother Steve, is this a command in Scripture to get angry? No, it's not. He's saying, if you do get angry, don't let it get to the point of sin. Don't let that anger bubble up inside of you so that you are going to be given over to revenge and avarice and slander and gossip and all those things with others. We're the new community. It's okay. When you get angry, don't let it get to the point of sin. Now, you might say, brother, how long can you allow anger to be in your life and not let it develop into sin? I think Paul gives us a stopwatch on anger here. Notice this, do not let the sun go down in your anger. That's about how long we can last, isn't it? Don't let it build up. Don't let it mount up. You have until sundown. You have until sundown. You get angry, someone might say, well, brother, what happens if I get angry after sundown? Do I get a reprise and I get to go 24 hours to the next day? In other words, when you retire from the day, be done with it be done with it. Don't let that anger fester in your life. So he says, give no opportunity to the devil. The devil may not be the cause of our anger. It's our own sinfulness. But yet we don't want to give the the devil an opportunity to feed on that anger and to cause it to even infester all the more and where people will do terrible things as a result of that anger. 
So Paul says, you have a little bit of a time frame here. You have till sundown. Get angry, okay. Don't sin. Don't let it get to the place of sin. But here you can settle it before the sun goes down. Now again, just like we saw in verse 25, verses 26 and 27 have their roots in the Old Testament. Brother John read it for us here this morning. Let's go back, if we could, to our scripture reading today. Psalm chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5. Psalm chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. This great psalm. By the way, I love this psalm. If, if you can't sleep at night, read this psalm. Psalm 4 is the great antidote to sleeplessness, to fear. Read Psalm 4. Better than a sleeping pill. So much better than medication. Read Psalm 4. This will calm your hearts. And notice what David says in Psalm 4 and verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Here Paul is quoting the psalmist. Ponder in your hearts on your beds. And here's where he encompasses that first part of Ephesians 4. And be silent. Listen, anger, unfettered, can stir up and fuel the tongue. These things are interrelated. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There's a key to understanding anger here. Angry people usually feel out of control in a certain area of their life. They've lost control, in other words. So what do they revert to? Anger. They become short with other people. They are given over to a small, smoldering anger. And we're going to see that in a minute in another portion here of Ephesians 4. Anger means I'm frustrated, I'm out of control, I've lost control, I feel better when I can dominate a situation. And so therefore, when something happens outside their control, their immediate response is not to trust the Lord, as the psalmist is encouraging us to do here, or to be silent and to, and to guard the tongue from saying something that we will almost always regret later. But the angered person feels like my rights have been violated. I'm not in control. I've lost certain things, and I'm going to take it out on somebody else. And it may not have anything to do with you. Someone may be coming at you in a fit of rage or anger, and you're just the wonderful, blessed, God-ordained recipient of someone else's frustration and anger. Isn't that good? <laughs> and we've all been there, right? But this is something that we must see as brothers and sisters in Christ. Anger usually stems from one who feels that they've lost control of their lives. And so therefore, they're going to take that out. They're going to blame others incessantly. Go with me here to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 12. Again, Solomon's Proverbs here are written to us. He's the writer of most of the Proverbs. But they're given to us to show us real wisdom on dealing with some of these life traits and life issues. Let's look at this here together. Proverbs chapter 16, yes, and verse 12. Proverbs chapter 16 and, and verse 12. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, 
For the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. So here we see at the highest level of Israel's theocracy, the king, the delight of the king are righteous lips. He loves him who speaks what is right. But here when you have anger associated with it, it's an abomination to kings to do evil. So here we see that the anger will exemplify itself in either evil actions, kingly rule, political speech, or it will honor that which is good, right, lovely, and true. Also, Proverbs chapter 25 and in verse 28. Proverbs chapter 25 and in verse 28. Oh, I love this. Notice this, here's anger. If we're going to say that anger is one that is out of control, notice this. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Wow. Someone who is given over to fits of rage is one who has literally been given over to something that is like a broken down city is like a broken down city at another place in Proverbs Solomon says whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city Proverbs 16:32. isn't that interesting whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and whoever rules his own spirit than the one who takes a city. Talk about the honorable soldier is the one who's not given over to simply fits of anger or rage. Now, Paul goes a little bit farther here. He tells us back in Ephesians chapter 4 that not only are we to speak what is truthful and not only are we to have no corrupting talk in our lives and not only that, we are to be given over to not being angry and not letting the sun go down in our anger because it could give an opportunity to the devil. But notice this, beloved, in verse 31. He says also, here's the result of anger. And here are some of the characteristics of one who is constantly angry. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Let's begin with the last verse. Malice is the quality. It's the belt that ties all those other things up. Malice is the ability to want to purposely damage another in fracture fellowship to make yourself more exalted. It's the purpose fracturing of another. It's what we see on kind of these Geraldo-esque shows, even that's not a personal slam against Geraldo here, but an Geraldo-esque show. It's the gotcha moment. Malice is the purposed forethought to hurt another, purposely from aligning their character and tearing them down. And it's usually for the exaltation of yourself. So as Paul says here, let all bitterness, again, that's the hard heart, wrath and anger. By the way, wrath is 
is the, the quick release. Anger is the s- slow smoldering thing. So you have someone either with a, a quick trigger on their anger or you have someone like Mount St. Helens that that stuff just churns and churns and churns. It could be weeks, months, even years below the surface. And one day that mountain blows its top and it just gets everywhere. That smoke and ash just goes into the jet stream. That's what happens with someone who buries that anger for a long time and then all of a sudden, man, there is a payoff day. There's a day of reckoning. There's a payday and you're gonna explode and it's not gonna be pleasant. So he says, in clamor and slander, gossip in other words, slander, be put away from you. So this flows out of a life that is angry, a life that doesn't honor the Lord. This is the same thing Peter tells us while encouraging us to live a life that's controlled by the Word of God. In 1 Peter 2, 1, he says, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word that you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. The Lord is good. This is how we are to live with one another. We're not to be given over to those other fits of rage in our lives, but we are to honor the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do. No wonder Paul says in Colossians chapter 4 and in, um, let's see here. Um, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 4 verse 7 He says, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and servant in the Lord. Now, there's the characteristic of a brother who wants to build up the body of Christ, unlike the one who simply wants to divide. And then in Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 8, he says, you've put off that old self. You've done these things. And he says, but now you must put them all away. Again, here's this same list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. See, Paul's bringing it right to where the rubber meets the road in our lives. What is descriptive of a new believer in Jesus Christ? When we are part of a new community, all the old things have passed away, behold, all things become new. And he's dealing with not only new tongues, but new attitudes to go with them. This is the great work of the gospel in us. You might say, brothers, you're speaking here. I feel terribly convicted. I don't, uh, I haven't arrived at this. Well, listen, good news, you're not alone this morning. We are all under construction in these things, aren't we? None of us have arrived at these things. So Paul is saying there must be new attitudes. No wonder in James chapter one, he says, we are to be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen, because the anger of man does not forward on the goodness of God. You see, this is where we are to be. It doesn't do the righteousness of God any justice, just a spout. Number three this morning, godliness. Godliness in the tongue, godliness in the new attitude, but also godliness and hard work. I love this. Godliness and hard work. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28 The Apostle Paul gives us really a great ethic that is so lacking in today's world. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, 
That word there means to do hard work, a good day's work, do honest work with his own hands so that he have something to share with anyone in need. You see, we, we live in a culture of entitlements and dependency, don't we? You know, it's, it's tragic today. I don't know the exact numbers, but people are encouraged by our current system of government to actually not go out and try to find work. Some people can make more money by taking the welfare check than by actually doing a good day's work. Some even have the ability to work and do not work, and it's a form of stealing. And Paul says, don't let the thief steal. Now we think of that as the classic robber breaking into a home, breaking into a car, stealing something, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands that may have something to share with anyone in need. This is really a key principle, especially for us men here this morning, considering it's Father's Day. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. This is a wonderful section of Scripture, one of my favorites, in fact. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. Paul said while he was with those dear believers in the city of Thessalonica, he says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you're not willing to work, you shouldn't eat. Now, understand, this isn't talking about those that are handicapped, physically restrained, have no ability to function this way. But listen, especially for the men here this morning, if we have the ability to work, we should work, and the inferences, we should not pad that person with gifts. If they're not willing to work, Paul says, don't let them eat. What's the lesson? The fewness of vittles drives that person to work. You know, an empty cupboard will say, boy, I got to get out this morning. I got to find work. That's a good thing for us as men. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. There's the opposite of effective work. Not busy at all, but busy bodies. What an interesting phrase. Not busy, but yet they're busy bodies. These are ones that, that really just want to involve themselves in everyone else's affairs. Why? Because they're idle. Man, they got to fill up the day with something. So they're busy busybodies. You know, they look into other people's things. They're just always about undermining others. They're not busy, but they're busybodies. They're idle. He says, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly to earn their own living. So this is a good thing, men, for all of us. This is a good thing. I had a chance to stop by Ford dealership yesterday to see Brother Tom. And uh, Tom is uh, selling cars over there, and he's doing quite well. And if I can add a plug for my brother, he's working hard. Go give him some fruit of his labor. If you need a car, buy a car. You can see him after the service. Tom, just 10%, and I'll be fine. <laughs> but it's good to see a man work hard. It's good to see a man labor. Now, listen, this doesn't mean to be a workaholic. We want to have a balanced life. So this doesn't mean we start at 6 in the morning and we work until midnight and we have no time for our families and friends and times of respite and relaxation and rejuvenation. We want to work. And if you work, here's your, your wonderful fruit of that labor is you'll make an income and you'll be able to eat. Not idle, 
not just laying around at home looking at another soap opera or something else. You're a busy body. And Paul says that should not be the case. We should honor the Lord with effective labor. There's a great example of this with the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20, verses 33 to 35. I love this passage of Scripture. This passage, you know, Paul is writing to the Ephesian elders. He is getting ready to leave. In fact, it's the last time that he'll see them. He's headed off. They know that his persecution is coming, that most likely he will be on his last journey and that he will be killed soon for the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says something to him, not just on holding fast the gospel, not just on holding fast to truth and to preaching the whole counsel, the word of God, and to warning them about fears, wolves that will come in. But notice this in verse 33. This is something that all the prosperity teachers on Christian television networks should have branded on them. Notice it says this, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Isn't that good? It's not about money. It's not about clothing. Paul says, I didn't covet that. That's synonymous to idolatry. To covet it means that you just have this insatiable desire and thirst to get it until that other person gives it to you, even if you have to take it. He says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Paul wasn't coming in trying to fleece the flock. He says, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't it true in our lives? When we get a little gift in the mail, when we get maybe a surprise check that we weren't, Uh, expecting to get, isn't it a wonderful thing to say, man, I wonder who I can help with this today? Doesn't that give you great joy when you say, you know, I've been hurting, but now I have a few extra pennies here. I'd like to help XYZ person. I know someone in the church is, uh, is maybe needing their electric bill paid or a new washer or they need a meal and I'm able to go to the grocery store and get them something. It's a wonderful thing to give to others, isn't it? Even out of a sense of our own privation sometimes. More blessed to give. You never lose a dime on what you give to others. You may lose it in the stock market, you may lose it in trading, commodities, and other things. You never lose a nickel that you give to the Lord and that you are able to help others with. Paul says, I didn't come here to fleece you. I didn't covet your money, your silver, your gold, your apparel. He said, it's more blessed to give than receive. And he says, I wanna encourage you to work with your hands so you can help the weak and help the weak. That's the church, that's the new community. Not hoarding up wealth for ourselves, but helping others in their privation, in their state. So Paul says, practical godliness tames the tongue. We have a new attitude. It works hard. Number four this morning, godliness and daily worship. Godliness and daily worship. This is a familiar verse. It's a perplexing one. I'll be honest with you. It's a perplexing one, but Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Notice these I think disturbing words, but yet convicting at the same time. Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, this is daily worship. We want to live to please Him. This word grieve, it simply means to make sorrowful sad, to cause someone to be offended, troubled. 
Paul is saying this here. He's saying the Holy Spirit can be grieved. This, this I think, is such a, an amazing, profound description of the third member of the Trinity, that the Holy Spirit is not some sort of aberration. He, he's not some uh, impersonal force. He's a person. And listen, can you believe that my actions and your actions can actually bring sadness to God the Spirit? We can grieve the Holy Spirit by how we live. He will be given over to sorrow. This is taken out of Isaiah chapter 63 in verse 10, and the prophet says, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy, and he himself fought against them. You see, when we do this, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. What, what grieves him? Everything that we've read so far. Everything that we've read. And he says, you were even sealed with the Holy Spirit for this day of redemption. Think of it. My actions could grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, there's only five commands when it comes to the Spirit of God in all of the Scriptures. To walk in the Spirit, pray in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, do not grieve the Spirit. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, here Paul gives us another command. It's not synonymous with grieving, but it's something that he warns us about in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. He says, do not quench the Spirit. We want to be filled, walk, pray in the Spirit, not, not grieve the Spirit, and do not quench the Spirit. And again, thinking that our actions could not only bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit, to God Himself, but yet we could quench, we could limit, we could put a dampening effect on His work within us as His people. He says, don't quench the Spirit of God. Here in 1 Thessalonians 5, don't despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold to what is good. Abstain. Notice that from every form of evil, there it is, obedience in him. Obedience in him. A great description of a Christian is found in Philippians 3.3. He says, we are not the circumcision of the flesh. Paul says, we worship in the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus and we place no confidence in the flesh. This is why I've entitled this, this particular attribute, Godliness and Daily Worship, because if we are to worship in the Spirit of God, and that's our daily duty, and we are to let our life's breath worship in Him, this isn't talking about coming to church at, at 10 o'clock and leaving it at 11.30 and think I've worshiped Him. No, this is the daily habit of worship in, in Him. This is the daily work of worship. And He says, therefore... We worship in the Spirit of God. We don't want to quench. We don't want to grieve. When we sin, my brothers and sisters, and we're unrepentant, it grieves the Spirit of God. And He's the one who has sealed us until that day of redemption. Daily worship. Practical godliness means we worship Him daily. Lastly, lastly, and we could spend another hour on this. We won't this morning, but we could. But I want to mention it to you. It is profound. Godliness and forgiveness. Godliness and forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. 
here he brings us, I think, right to the nexus of all of this. Ephesians 4.32. What's the antidote to all these things? To a tongue unbridled, to giving opportunity to the devil, to being full of anger, to stealing rather than working, to being given over to corruptive speech, rather than what's edifying and building up for others, grieving the Spirit of God, being filled with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. What's the antidote to all these things? Here it is. Be kind to one another. Kindness, it means what it says, kindness. Be kind. Our first response is kindness. It doesn't mean that the iron can't sharpen the iron or we don't get frustrated. Of course we do. But be kind to one another. That's the general characteristic of our lives. Notice this, not hard-hearted, tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. I'm going to believe, if love believes all things, that I'm going to believe what's best about you. I'm going to believe what's best about you. Tender-hearted. That's our first response. We can disagree. We can lock horns from time to time. That's okay. We can be angry. We don't want to sin. We don't want to let it go down on our, on our uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And we don't want to hold a list of grievances. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, right? But it rejoices in the truth. So he says you want to be kind, not hard-hearted, tender, soft with each other. And he says, here it is, forgiving one another. How much as God in Christ forgave you? Say, Steve, I was with you until that this morning. (laughs) I have to forgive as God forgave me in Jesus? Yes, that's the standard. At At the end of the Lord's Prayer, we're told in Matthew chapter 6 that we are to forgive one another as God has forgiven you, and if you don't forgive one another, God won't forgive you. Think of that. If we don't forgive each other of our sins, if we hold ought, if we think, man, I've arrived, this guy hasn't, this lady hasn't, whatever it may be, if we hold forgiveness when sought by another, God won't forgive us. What does he mean? Listen to this. It means we're not saved. That's what it means. A true Christian may go through a pipeline of struggling with this, but they'll always end up forgiving. Why? Because we've been forgiven. We've been forgiven. Luke 17 tells us if a man sins against you seven times a day and every time says, I repent, he says, forgive him. Forgive him. You might say, man, I can't handle this person anymore. They keep doing that same thing over and over and over again. They keep saying, I repent. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Yeah, I'm supposed to forgive again. Yes. The quality of their repentance is on them, not on you. But you have no option. I have no option, no right to withhold forgiveness for one who seeks it. Huge. Forgive one another. We're going to conclude this morning with an amazing story. Let's go there, please, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. I love this story. It is a tremendous story on forgiveness. It may be listed in your Bible as the parable of the unforgiving servant. Peter came up 
and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Don't you love Peter? He's already looking for the loophole, isn't he? I'll forgive him, but that eighth time, I get my anger. I get my revenge. I get my payback. Peter's looking for the, for the loophole. Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Remember, seven is the number of perfection, the number of completion. He's not telling them 490 times, 491, you're free. He's just saying, always forgive, always forgive. Here it is. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. Here's, you want to know what the new community looks like? You know what the body of Christ should look like? You know what the kingdom of heaven looks like? Here it is may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one, was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, notice this, and forgave him the debt. Amazing. Now, I want you to know, 10,000 talents, this was greater than the entire national debt of Israel at the time. The Lord is using a number here that's innumerable. What's our debt currently? 18 trillion. So it's like I come and I'll, you say, brother, you owe me $18 trillion. Infathomable. No one could repay that back. Even if they do increase minimum wage, that's an astronomical number. You can't get to it. And notice here, this one, the master forgave him the debt, wiped it out. He says, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, literally a day's labor. Think of what a day's labor would be, 60 bucks, 80 bucks. And he says, pay me what you owe me. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. He says, have patience with me and I will repay you. Same thing that he said to the master. And then he said he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. One was shown complete grace and mercy of an innumerable, an astronomical debt he could never repay. And a little tiny debt that his fellow man had with him, a day's wage for 80 bucks, he called the authorities. He had him put into prison until he could pay. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. His master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Literally, it reads, to the torturers. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What is he saying? In Jesus Christ on the cross, you and I have been forgiven an astronomical, insurmountable debt much greater than $18 trillion. Our sin against a holy God is an eternal, weighty, huge, massive crime. And God in Christ forgave us that debt. We could not earn it. We could not pay him for it. We could not work hard enough at religious, righteous deeds. He simply forgave us.
And then he's saying, one of, one of your fellow, fellow neighbors, fellow people has wronged you. Small thing, small thing, a day's wage. And rather than showing your fellow man, your fellow Christian, the mercy you received, you want to have it out. Pound of flesh. I'm going to put you through the paces till you pay me everything. Why? Because my sensibilities were offended. And in order for you to get back into relationship with me, you're going to have to pay the piper. And Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother your debt. What is he saying? You've been forgiven the greater debt. So therefore, forgive the small debt. Forgive the small debt. Listen, no matter what someone has done to you in this lifetime, it's the small debt compared to what our sin did to Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, there's freedom in that, folks. There is freedom in the power of forgiveness. You don't believe me? Look at Charleston this morning. There is freedom. There's tears. There's sorrow. But there's no bitterness. There's no revenge. There's hurt. There's pain. But there's the sweetness of divine mercy because people that have experienced God's forgiveness over the great debt will be quick to give it to someone else on a small debt. It's good, isn't it? New community, new tongue, hard labor, anger before the sun goes down, settled, no opportunity for the devil, no corrupting speech. We want to work hard. We don't want to be given over to thievery. We don't want our lives to be lived grieving the Holy Spirit, but worshiping the Holy Spirit. And last but not least, the mark of the new community, and this is the chief thing, is that we are a loving, forgiving people. Father, we thank you for this morning. We are so grateful for the truth of your word and for the hope that we have of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we see this evidenced in how we are to live with one another, how we are to pray for one another and serve and love and care for one another. Lord, we have so much to shout about. In fact, this world is shouting these days of its racism, of its anger, of its Islamic terrorism, of its thievery of its revenge, of its right, of its vengeance. Oh, Lord, may we shout louder than the world is shouting about its sin. May we shout louder about our Savior. You're worthy. And as the new community that is marked by Jesus Christ, marked by the once-for-all sacrifice for our sin, marked by the grace and truth of the living Savior, the Lord of glory, who came and put on flesh, dwelt among us, lived a sinless life, but took every sin ever to be committed by everyone that would ever believe, and then rose bodily three days later and raised for our justification and now lives to make intercession for us. With such love as that, with such forgiveness as that, may we be a new community marked by that kind of life, by that kind of joy, by that kind of grace, by that kind of mercy. Lord, may we be kind and tenderhearted. 
may we be living out this new life in you. What a great day to be a Christian. May we do so even this hour. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.